Welcome to the People of Pathology podcast. I'm Dennis Strink. On this podcast, we explore pathology, laboratory medicine, and forensic science. As we know, there are many misconceptions about forensic pathology, and one area that I think definitely needs more attention is the role of forensic pathologists in public health. My guest today is forensic pathologist, Dr. Greg Davis. Today, we're going to talk about how Dr. Davis got started in pathology and forensic pathology. We'll hear his thoughts on the role of forensic pathologists in public health, his interest in pathology and law, and his term as president of the National Association of Medical Examiners. All right, here's Dr. Greg Davis. Let's kind of go all the way back to the beginning, going going through college. I, I, I want to know, like, was medical school always where you wanted to go after that? It was, and that started long before college, actually. Uh, okay. the, the truth is, it really started with my mother. She had the the dream that I would become a, a physician. And so I paid attention. I'd go to the pediatrician, of course, if nothing more than a, than a preschool checkup. And uh, I always thought it was really interesting what they were doing and how they could tell this or that about my health by asking questions and listening to my chest and, and all that. So, so from early on, I thought, well, that, that seems like as good a job to do as any, it's interesting to me. So, so I was happy to, to pursue that course. Okay. Did you have anyone else, like any other family members that were in the medical field? No, no. So I was the first on either side to go into medicine. So I didn't have and that was a, a a blessing in a way. I didn't have, for example, a father who had an established practice that would want me to come and, and join that practice. So that way I was free to choose whatever specialty appealed to me. Uh, what What specialties did appeal to you at the beginning? Well, I didn't really know because... I didn't have, I mean, a pediatrician, of course, I'd been to, and, and, but I, I had no idea what was involved. I had done work over summers in washing surgical instruments. So I'd seen surgery and I, and that looked interesting to me. I didn't realize how, how demanding it truly was. So it, after I was exposed to it as a medical student, I realized that I did not have the, the temperament or, or discipline to be a, a surgeon. I have nothing but respect for surgeons, but I don't want to be one. Then I just, I just, each rotation I, I went on, I thought this could be it. I don't know. This could be it. And uh, some were more interesting to me in, than others. I, I liked internal medicine. I, I liked OBGYN. But I also had, we had a very strong pathology course. I went to Vanderbilt to medical school and they had great faculty when I was a medical student really impressive. And they they recognized that the pathology course was their opportunity to model what it meant to be a physician to us medical students. And, and they were our first exposure. They would say it on the first day of class. Welcome to the practice of medicine. This begins your medical career. And so that really captured my interest. I had been a chemistry major in college, as my father was before me. And so I liked laboratories. And so the pathology laboratory was always something that seemed possible to me. And so when I became a fourth-year student, and had the opportunity to, to try a, rotations that I would choose. I chose pathology early on to see whether that was something I would like to do. And it was. 
right at the beginning of that rotation, did you know right away that's what you wanted to do or did it take a little while? No, it took a while and I got really good counsel. Uh, I, I really had liked OBGYN and I, and I very much liked pathology. So there was an OB resident named Brad. I don't know if he remembers this at all or not, but I remember it vividly. And, and so I, I, I asked Brad, he was a good guy. We, we liked to. So I did something I always do in this sort of circumstance. I said, I need to talk with you, but, but I, I think it goes well over a meal. So I will invite you to dinner and buy you dinner. And I think we went to a Chinese restaurant or, and I said, so I asked him what he thought. And of course he was too wise to tell me what to do, but he did say the thing I needed to hear, which was Brad said, I've noticed over the years that some people like OBGYNs more than they actually like OB. And I just, I realized over the next day or two, he's right. I really like the people, but I don't know if I actually want to do that job all the time. And, uh, and so that was it. That's how I made my decision to become a pathologist. I've never regretted it. Okay. You know, I've heard from people that when they, when they do choose pathology and, other people kind of find out about it. Like there's sort of this, you know, Oh, I can, you know, you're going to be stuck away in the lab and, you know, you're so good with patients and things like that. Did you hear that kind of stuff? I, I did some from, from mostly from people in internal medicine uh, and more from, uh, from some of the residents than I did from uh, attending physicians. I know there are places where the, even the, the attending physicians discourage anyone from going into pathology, but, uh, but I don't know. I didn't see it that way. I didn't know that I would have as much interaction with families as I do as a forensic pathologist. So curiously, the people who said, you're really good with patients, it's a shame to throw that away. Their fears were unfounded because I deal with family members regularly. And I did today and, and give them answers to their questions and try to help them understand medically what's happened. So So I'm very much a primary care physician in a very special field. You know, I think a lot of people don't know about that aspect of forensic pathology, that it's there is a lot of um, talking with the families. Yeah, they, no, you're right. They don't. They, they think somehow because the specific patients, if you wish, that we see are dead, that we never right. talk to another living human. But that's completely untrue. We talk to them at a one of the most difficult times in their lives. So it's, it's really, it's, it's, it's gratifying when you can help. I, I can't always help. Uh, sometimes grief is, is more than I can somehow get through to the person, but it, it's really, you, you want to be able to help and I can help by trying to answer their questions. And, and so I do. Do you get some kind of, like throughout your forensic pathology fellowship, do you get some kind of training in how to speak with people about those kinds of things? No more really than just, uh, we're sure you know how to do it. You've talked with patients before. It's the same sort of thing. Brush up on those skills. And and they were right. It was dawning at first because I hadn't done it in, that is, talked with patients in five years. But but after a, you know a few times of it, I thought, oh, I can do this. I can handle this. And and then I, as I learned more forensic pathology and 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 grew more 
comfortable in my knowledge, I, I became more comfortable in my interactions with family members as well. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. That's kind of comes with just more experience, more practice. Exactly. Okay. Now, all right. So how did you get interested in forensic pathology? Like at what point during your pathology residency did that kind of start to happen for you? It was late. I knew right away, I was on autopsy as my first rotation. And I realized after the end of the first year, and I'm starting to kind of get some feeling for what all of this is about. Uh, I, I, I actually got a job moonlighting, performing autopsies at a, at a local hospital. And I remember one night working there, uh, moonlighting, thinking, I enjoy this more than anything else in pathology. If I could just find a job where this is what I do, that's what I would want to do. So you'd think it would be obvious to me at that moment, but it was not. I thought that forensic pathology would be disturbing. I'd have nightmares. And and so I had gotten married. My wife and I got married about... I don't know, maybe a year before I had my forensic rotation, which was way late in my in my residency. And for some reason, before I left the house that morning to go the first day, I told her, don't worry, I'm not going to like this. I don't know why I said that. But, <laughs> but at the end of the first week, I had seen the most spectacular variety of cases that I've ever seen in a week in forensic pathology. I had seen everything, horrific things. And they were horrific. I do not wish to minimize that, but I did not have nightmares. And I had the sense that I could actually work in this and and do good work. And and that would be helpful both to individuals and to society. And so about two weeks into it, I said, well, I've got something to tell you. And uh, Sue is, is my wife. Sue smiled and she said, well, I wondered how long it was going to take you to tell me. And I said, how did you know? And she said, it's been obvious. I've never seen you this happy coming home from work. I know you love what you're doing right now. So so I, I actually changed course. I had already agreed to a, a fellowship in hematopathology for a year. And I did that. But before I even started HemePath, I'd already gone and interviewed and gotten a position in forensic pathology for the year after I finished my for, uh, HemePath Fellowship. But about the HemePath Fellowship, do you feel like some of the things you learned there, can you apply that to forensics? Definitely. In particular, the the leader of the HemePath team was very diligent in recording incidents. So whenever he would have a conversation with uh, someone who had sent a consult to him, he would always make notes of, of the conversation. And so I saw that and knew that was important. It's just another way of making uh, adding to the medical chart. But they were really for the pathologist and that that information. And so that's a critically important part of forensic practice as well. But I already knew from before I ever started forensic training, that I needed to keep those kind of careful records. And even if you talk with a family member and you think you're really busy and you don't have time to write it down, well, that's just too bad because you've got to write down that you had a conversation 
on this day at this time. And this is the essence of the conversation. So that alone has stood me in good stead. But I also learned how to make the jump in responsibility from residence, resident status to fellow status. So that when I began my forensic fellowship, I was already comfortable with the additional responsibility. And I could really concentrate on learning of the technical aspects of being a forensic pathologist. Oh, I see. Yeah, that, that sounds really important. That was probably, uh, uh, probably really key. Can you tell me about, did you have like early on, I guess, mentors in the forensic pathology specialty at that time? I, I did. My first mentor was Julia Gooden. She was there in Nashville where I did my residency. And uh, it was she who demonstrated that you could be a forensic pathologist and and just be an ordinary person, not not some sort of false idea I had of what forensic pathologists were like for watching from watching television. Then in my fellowship, I had many good teachers. I actually wrote them down so I would not forget a name. But okay, but John Eisel, Chris Swalwell, Mark Super, Brian Blackburn, Harry Bennell, and Lena Jarawala were all my teachers during my fellowship. And that was a wonderful, wonderful year. I learned something from every single one of them and made it part of what I became as a forensic pathologist. And then even later in my academic career, because that's what I ended up having, mm -hmm. um, individuals uh, also were mentors to me, uh, Bruce Alexander and John Smith at UAB, where I practice, and then Randy Hanslick, who was the chief medical examiner for Fulton County, Georgia, which is a good part of Atlanta. When when was it that you went back and got the master's in public health? That was about six years after I started my job okay. here at UAB. Or maybe, you know, you start at one point and then you finish two or three years later. But but I, I started work here in 97 and I I think I'm remembering right. I think I graduated with my master's degree in, in public health in 2001. And it was Sue who got me to do that in some ways. Well, first off, I'd have to warn anybody listening to this. Be careful if you say something to to, to one of your um, bosses, if you wish. And what I said was, I wish I understood better how to do research so that I could do better research. And so the vice chair, Bruce Alexander, said, well, why don't you go to graduate school and learn how to do it then? So <laughs> okay. I kind of I felt trapped, but, but I realized he was giving me good advice. So uh, and then uh, Sue really liked that because by that time we had two uh, uh, infants and toddler, an infant and a toddler, and I had been traveling some with, with work. And she reasoned that if I was in graduate school, I wouldn't be able to travel so much and I could be home more, which was also true. So the whole family benefited by my getting that master's degree. <laughs> okay. Uh, why was it that you wanted to get better at doing research? There's not nearly as much research in forensic pathology as, as I wish that there were. Most forensic offices are with our civil functions of government, whether state or local government. And as a civil office, a civil service position, the they're typically not paid or with, there's no expectation of research. They're just you're paid to do a job, do the job, and that's it. Mm -hmm. So so I did not want to take 
the academic position that I got at UAB for granted. I knew that that this was giving me an opportunity because here research is an expected part of your responsibilities. So I knew I had an opportunity that I would I would be not just wasting it for myself, but I would really be wasting it for all of the discipline if I didn't engage in research in forensic pathology. So I wanted, and I, I could tell, I wasn't really doing scientific research. I was writing case reports or case series, but I wasn't testing hypotheses. That's what I got from going to graduate school. I learned how to form a hypothesis, typically an epidemiologic hypothesis, and then test it. And that made for much better work. You know, it's interesting. Many of the forensic pathologists that I've talked with have done kind of a similar thing. They've gotten a master's in public health. And it strikes me that a lot of people, sort of probably the general public, they don't understand, for the most part, uh, the role of the forensic pathologist in public health. Can you kind of speak to that role? Certainly. Public health really is founded on death certification. And the, the whole point, pe people think of a death certificate as some sort of obligate. They have to have it to unlock their accounts or something when someone in their family dies. And that's true. But the whole reason death certificates exist is to record the, the name, age, sex, those sorts of demographic information, data, and then couple that with what was the medical condition that caused this person to die. And then you can study that and see, oh, well, there's, there's, an, there's an increase in, in a cholera or, or what have you. This, this all started several hundred years ago. But by studying death, it's possible to prevent unnecessary death in those who are still living. So forensic pathology is very much caught up in that. Only about 5% of all deaths are non-natural deaths, that is, a, an accident or a suicide or a homicide. But all those deaths are being investigated by forensic pathologists. And then if you look at the people that are aged, say, 25 to 54, those are not ages where you ordinarily think of someone dying of natural death. In your 80s, 90s, sure. 70s for some people, but not 25 to 54. That should be the prime of life. So a third of the deaths that occur in that age group are non-natural deaths. So again, it's forensic pathologists who are investigating those deaths and figuring out what caused the death. And that information is critical for death certification and understanding what's happening. You can see it now, not with cholera so much, but with overdose deaths, all the information that we have, the concrete information about drugs involved and numbers of deaths, all of that comes from death certificates. Nowhere near that same specificity of information is available from hospital records for various reasons. They're just the emphasis on hospital care is treatment not necessarily figuring out exactly what it is that's gone wrong. By the time you would get your toxicology results back, the patient's already checked out of the hospital. But forensic pathologists, our purpose is to figure out what it was that caused someone to die. So we do get those detailed data 
that allow us to see, for example, the extent of the uh, opioid and other drug, because other drugs are now coming in too, to play again. The extent of of how those drugs, illicit use of those drugs, are causing deaths and unnecessary deaths. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that because kind of your interest in epidemiology, that really a lot of that, it seems like, is is focused on the drug-related deaths, the drug overdoses. And I'm curious how you got interested in that in that area. Was that just because of the field that you're in or or, or was it something else? It was, it was partly the forensic pathology, but it was also my, my chemistry training. So I had taken a class in medicinal chemistry in college, okay. and, and I, I was really fascinated by, by chemistry and, and the interaction of, of drugs with the human body, pharmacology. And then as a forensic pathologist, she quickly realized that illicit druggies, well, I won't just say illicit, uh, the prohibition has been repealed, but any sort of of inappropriate use of substances, some substances, I think, anyway, it would always be inappropriate to use those. Others, like alcohol, it's, po- it's possible to use it in an appropriate way, or it's possible to, to be an alcoholic. If you're in forensic pathology, you quickly see that if you were able to stop I don't know how it'd be done, but if you could stop illicit drug use or excessive use of intoxicating compounds, not only would you end overdose deaths, but you would severely decrease the number of automotive deaths. You would decrease suicides and homicides. All these things are tied into that one entity, excessive substance, uh, intoxicating substance use or illicit drug use. And if we could figure out how to, to get to how to make that so unattractive to people that they would not try those substances, then we would largely stop unnecessary premature death to, to a great degree. Was that then part of the opioid position paper from the National Association of Medical Examiners. Uh, I guess this was the, it first came out in 2013 and you were the lead author on this paper, both on the original and then the updated version uh, last year. Is yes. that okay? And now this, this interest in your kind of your work in drug related deaths, is that how that project started? Partly, but to answer your question, I need to describe a little bit how death certification works in the United States. Okay. So, so we are the United States, and it turns out that death investigation is a state's state function, not a federal function. There is no federal medical examiner system that oversees all states. Now, there's a federal system in the in the military. You know that that would be federal because there is the Armed Forces Medical Examiner's Office, but they they oversee military matters and not just all deaths in the nation. So because we're a union of, of 50 states, there I believe there are actually 57 different jurisdictions for, for public health and death certification. But because we're this amalgamation, you have differences in how different regions collect data to some extent. There, there's, great, there's great uniformity, but there's also variation. Well, that's good in one way because it allows 
say, one state to try a little bit of an experiment, see how that goes before other states would would pick up that practice, too, if, if it's a good practice. But it also makes it frustrating, particularly for federal agencies such as the National Center for Health Statistics, which is a division of the Center for Centers for Disease Control, because they would like to see uniformity. They don't want to see one state gathering one degree of specificity on death certificates. Say, say one state might have found it acceptable to just say overdose and then the manner of death. Whereas another state would say, well, we want you to list the drugs that are involved in the overdose. But you can easily understand that having specific drugs listed for what caused the overdose would be more useful than knowing it's simply an overdose. You you can tell, oh, there's an increase in deaths associated with opioid drugs. If you only had overdose, well, you, you wouldn't be able to tell what it was. So the first paper in 2013 was really calling for of various jurisdictions to to adopt uniform practice of specificity on death certificates. And there were various parts of that paper that addressed different needs to achieve that uniformity. Then it worked. The amount of specificity on death certificates, about 75% of death certificates prior to that 2013 paper had specific drugs listed on them. That's 75% of the death certificates in the nation. About five years later, the CDC looked at the death certificates again, and that specificity had increased from 75% to 88%. That's a big jump. Mm-hmm. Getting people to change their practices is really hard. So, so the CDC was delighted. I was delighted that we had been able to to pull together this coalition of experts, make these recommendations, and then people were following the recommendations. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. Like, what sort of feedback, or you know, that did you did you get from th- that initial paper? And it sounds like it was it was all positive. Was it like there was there was a need for this kind of thing, and you just and you were able to to fill the need? Well, that was part of what came out of out of sitting down and talking together. The the need, not, you know, you practice in your own sphere, and you don't necessarily realize what the larger need is. That was something that the CDC was able to bring and say, "This is a concern. We see this as a problem. How could we address it?" And it was actually the CDC who who provided the funding to allow us to to meet. In, in one individual meeting in person. And then, you know, there were, there were many conference calls in addition to that one meeting, but it was, it was that taking that time. That's, that's what I've learned throughout my career or over the course of my career. That's what that sort of, of uh, financial support enables. I mean, we all have jobs. We're all busy. We're all doing our work. That financial support allows people to go somewhere and then they're dedicated just to this one project and thinking about this one project for a few, for a few days, just a couple of days, and then a uh, really good, good work comes from it. So then in 2020, there was uh, an updated version of this paper. Why did it become 
necessary at at that point to to update the paper so the paper is is a position paper of the National Association of Medical Examiners and the National Association of Medical Examiners has a rule if you wish we we impose it upon ourselves but if a position paper concerns scientific matters then it sunsets after five years. And the purpose of that would be so that we don't publish something about, say, the four humors and how black bile causes distemper or something <laughs> like that. And, right. and, then, and then time passes and we realize that that's no longer true. Uh, so, so after five years, we have to revisit something of, you know, people and and bureaucracy being what it is, it, it took us seven years to get a new position paper published, not just the five. But we were able to do something useful in the 2020 paper that, that we had not done in the 2013, which is in the 2013 paper, we called for specificity. But when I reviewed the 2013 paper, I realized we hadn't offered a reader any guide to how to to make judgments about specificity. That is, if a person has three or four different drugs in their system, do you just write them all down? Or is there sometimes, is it possible to tease apart and say, well, this drug is, is caused death, but this other drug that's present in the body really isn't why this person died. And so we shouldn't, we need to focus on what is causing death, not the, the other drug that, that uh, so say a person has arthritis, and so they're taking they're taking some sort of nonsteroidal drug like ibuprofen for their arthritis, and then they are also using fentanyl and illicitly, and they die from the fentanyl. Well, the ibuprofen, we could check the concentration. And if it's high, it's high, but but usually it would be present at a therapeutic level. And so I would not ascribe death to this one drug, ibuprofen, which was being used to treat arthritis appropriately, when the real problem is fentanyl, and it's present at a high concentration that can cause death. Okay, I see. And there was, there's certainly still a need for guidelines like this. I mean, sadly, the, the opioid epidemic is is still going on. It is. It's it's actually, you may not hear as much about it in the news because COVID seems to have displaced. Right. Report, But in fact, there's been a 30% increase in overdose deaths in 2020 compared to 2019. So it's very much still with us. Uh, I don't think COVID made things better. I actually think the isolation and, and frustration and depression and despair made them worse. Yeah, I, I would agree with that for sure. This is the People of Pathology podcast with our guest, Dr. Greg Davis. We'll be right back. LabVine is building a team to help lab medicine professionals live their best lives. Now, these are commission-based sales positions, and the only requirement is that you're passionate about helping people, especially laboratorians. I'll have a link in the show notes where you can email for more information or just watch the LabVine social media pages. Also this month on LabVine, there are some great resources for managing laboratory finances. These topics include financial management, financial statements, budgets, controlling costs, and making financial decisions. And you can find these at LabVine by following the link in the show notes. 
Dress Med has been designing and manufacturing high-quality scrubs since 1980. The prices are affordable, the shipping is very fast, and the scrubs have lots of pockets, which I really like. I actually have several sets of these myself. So check out Dress Ahmed by using the link in the show notes. You can sign up for their loyalty program for free and earn special offers and discounts. Now back to Dr. Greg Davis on the People of Pathology podcast. Something else that you've written extensively about, the relationship between pathology and law. I mean, you've, you've written a few papers on this, and you've even published a book on the subject. Now, so I'm curious then about this interest. Where, where did this come from? Was this from your own experiences or experiences of others or just, some, uh, just an interest that you had uh, separate from that? When you become a forensic pathologist, you're, you're taking upon yourself the responsibility to testify in court when that occasion arises. I found it, I think terrifying is not too strong a word. It just is part of me. I like to have some awareness of what's going on because I, I really, I don't mind making a mistake, but I don't want to make a blunder because I don't even know what the rules are. That that's just, that's just embarrassing. And it's not helping. That's actually harmful, particularly in court. So, so, for example, when I first went on the, the medical wards as a medical student, it was immediately apparent that there were there were these social rules of conduct that everyone there knew, but I didn't know them. And you know, I didn't know do you, how, do you do you speak to this person? How do you speak to that person? And mm. and over time I learned the rules and then I was I was much more comfortable. But I go to court, and now the court is very different from anything I'd ever experienced in life or in in the hospital. So I didn't know the rules again. But unlike the hospital where I was going every day, I would only go to testify court every month or two. So it took me some years to get enough experience to be comfortable that I knew what I was doing, what was expected of me, when it was proper to speak or when it was proper. I was supposed to remain silent. So the reason the book, the book came out of a workshop that I gave at the USCAP meeting. And it came about because of, of uh, Dr. Alexander, Bruce Alexander, one of my mentors at UAB, he had me uh, sit down at lunch once with a visiting uh, Professor uh, Steve Vogel. He was a neuro neuropathologist who was at that time head of the USCAP. So this is a big deal. I mean, I'm, I'm just like three years out, so I'm just a kid. And here are these two grand old men, and they're talking about this and that. And it, it came up that Dr. Vogel would sometimes do expert witness testimony on neuropathology cases. And as he was talking about his experiences, I realized that he knew a hundred times more neuropathology than I did know or ever will know, but that I, for, for all of my youth and few years of experience, had been to court many more times than he had, and I knew a lot more about it than he did, just from experience. So I asked him if he thought that a workshop on how to prepare for court and what you can expect would be useful. And he said, oh, yeah, I think that'd be great. That's a great idea. Well, that certainly gives you some confidence when the president of the organization has, has endorsed the idea you have for a workshop. So, yeah. So I submitted the workshop and it was accepted. And then that led to interest by uh, the publisher uh, Springer 
uh, for a book on the subject, and I, I was happy to write it. And so that's perhaps a long answer to your question, but all of this sort of developed simply because I was in the field of forensic pathology, and it became apparent to me that this was very, very much needed. I'll give you another example of how it's needed. So when I was a medical student, we actually had a lecture for an hour uh, from the attorney who who was in charge of risk management for the hospital. And it was a fine enough lecture, I suppose. I've heard other such lectures given by hospital attorneys or attorneys who work for a hospital uh, to new residents, new medical students. They're trying to do a good job. And they do a good job if they were talking to attorneys, but they're not. They're talking to people in medicine. And so the attorneys really don't know what it's like to practice medicine. And no one in medicine, the attorneys always spend time, so I've observed, trying to justify why they can do this because of the precedent that the law sets. And and these are all legal matters of great legal importance. But for physicians or, or anyone practicing in medicine, I don't really care what the foundation of the law is. Just tell me what I can and cannot do. And maybe a, a short reason, but I don't have to have a 40-page a work explaining all, how we got here from, from the Declaration of Independence. So when I talk to physicians or residents about pathology and law, I start by saying, I'm a, I'm a physician. I'm not an attorney. I've never had any formal legal training, but I have been to the School of Hard Knocks. And I can tell you some things you need to know, and I can tell you the way attorneys think about medicine. Uh, and sometimes it's it's wrong because they just they don't understand. They haven't ever been in a situation or practiced medicine. So that's that's what I came to see as the importance for making these presentations. And it, and it seems to have resonated because I I am periodically asked to reprise some version of this talk again and again and uh it's it's always uh, met with uh with i don't know if i'd say enthusiasm but there are definitely people who come up to me afterward and said hey i had this particular circumstance may i talk to you about it and of course i make clear i'm not an attorney but i'm happy to talk to them and tell them what i think i you know i wrote down this quote from the book it says physicians use a scientific approach to try to come to a single correct diagnosis Whereas attorneys always use the one set of laws that they have to come to entirely different conclusions. Yeah. In other words, I'm saying the attorneys have the approach of there's two sides to every story. So they they take this one incident and then the narrative diverges and each one is telling their side of the story. Whereas physicians are taking various bits of information and trying to figure out what one thing, what one entity will explain everything that's going on or explain most of it. And then other parts perhaps are are just red herrings that don't pertain to the diagnosis. And that I think that's part of why it's physicians and attorneys sometimes have difficulty understanding each other because they're approaching their work from opposite directions. 
Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. It's a completely different language at, at times. And you go through great lengths almost to in the book to try to explain what that the, those differences are so that physicians can understand that a little bit better. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Now this seems like it's similar to the the opioid position paper. I mean, you you said it was it was a guide for for people to use for sort of practical use, and this is another example of that. You kind of creating this guide to again seem to fill a need that was already there. Well, I've I've observed that forensic pathologists tend to be practical people. Uh, some of that may be because we we have lots of work to do, and we just don't have time to to go chasing off. After esoterica, I mean, if it, we occasionally have cases that are esoteric or, or unusual, and then we have to work on them. But most of the time, we're just trying to solve specific or answer specific questions, and and do so in in a way that that thoroughly answers them, but no more. I mean, if I can answer the question with an autopsy that takes an hour and a half. And it's thorough. I don't need to take four and a half hours to do much more work that really won't answer any more questions. So I, I take that same sort of practical approach to, to these other fields as well. Uh, deep down, I, I think everybody wants to do good work. And uh, certainly if they've gone and gotten extra training in some aspect of medicine, whatever it may be, they want to do good work. You don't do all that work and study to be a slacker. So if we're all trying to do good work, then if we can just communicate with each other and discuss what would make for better work, I think in general, people are receptive to that and, and they'll, they'll respond as they did with the, after the position paper and start providing the specificity that's useful. They just need to understand, why are you asking this of me? When they understand, they'll do it. You were president of the National Association of Medical Examiners in 2014. And I'm always curious about when people get into sort of leadership positions in organizations like this. Like, how, do, how does that start? How do, you, how do you get involved and then sort of become, get on sort of the, the pathway to those, those kind of upper leadership roles? Well, the, the way you start is by volunteering to do the, the lesser tasks that need to be done. And then people see that you, that you, if you're given a job and you do it, then you're, you know, the reward for a job well done is more work. That's how you, you grow from a, a new person in the organization to, to a leader in the organization. I, I've had people tell me before that, that, they know if they give me something to do, I'll do it. I think that's I think that's it. I mean, it's just the 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 adage that that a lot of life is just showing up. Well, it's just showing up and then follow through. You do those things, you're you're probably going to do well, and people will be glad to have you. Uh, and, and of course, you you have to be polite. You you can't alienate people. But uh, if, if, if you've got all those, those skills, you're probably going to end up in some sort of leadership position. With respect to name, I had spent time on the board of directors. Uh, in part, I had, uh, I had mentioned that, that the name, ha name has these 
this sunsetting requirement for position papers, scientific position papers. Well, I was actually chair of the position paper committee that helped create that sunsetting example. I, I didn't realize when I was doing that, which I thought was the right thing to do. And I still think it's the right thing to do. But I did it did kind of make me smile ruefully when I realized that I had ended up catching myself because then the paper that I'd written was mm. going to sunset right. <laughs> and become become outdated. But it, it was it was the right thing to do. Um, but e even so, uh, after I was on the board of directors, there came a time and uh, uh, the, the president uh, the year ahead of me, uh, uh, Greg Schmunk, asked if I would uh, be willing to, to be vice president uh, under him as president. I said, yes, I would be happy to do that. And so then vice president, well, the next step at name is president. So. That's how that happened. I was just willing to serve when asked to serve. Mm, okay. Then uh, for your, your term as president, wh what was most memorable about that time for you? The, at, at the time, the National Association of Medical Examiners was trying to, to, to mend some fences with, with the Coroner's Association, the International Association for Coroners and Medical Examiners. I don't want to belabor it all too much. Just just for history, if if you're unfamiliar with it, coroners and medical examiners have often been at loggerheads in in the United States, and I I think that's unfortunate. We're we're, we're more or less in the same job, and again, if we can work together, if uh, if we can help each other, that that should improve the quality of, of death investigation as a whole. But mm -hmm. there were some, some aspects of the National Association of Medical Examiners autopsy standards that would not be politically acceptable to coroners. So coroner offices simply were not adopting or were, would refuse to follow the National Association of Medical Examiners. And it had to do with language that would be perceived by coroners as pro-medical examiner. Well, what do you expect with the National Association of Medical Examiners? But if you looked at what NAME was trying to accomplish with the autopsy standards, it really had nothing to, to do with this language. So, so that for me was was what I really accomplished. I, I was able to to disentangle the part that was unacceptable. Um, I couldn't get rid of it because because uh, if, if I tried to get rid of it, that would have failed. So I had to move it somewhere else, not in the standards. And then having disentangled those two things, the standards became acceptable to corner offices. And there are corner offices now that have adopted the National Association of Medical Examiners autopsy standards, uh, autopsy practice standards for their office. So, so that was, that was good, a good accomplishment for my presidency and I'm proud of it. Yeah, that's important. I mean, there, there are a lot of uh, professional organizations in pathology and lab medicine and other sort of related fields. And I think that sort of collaboration between organizations like you're talking about, I think that's really important, you know, especially dur during these times where the public doesn't know about these fields and, you know, there's a huge shortage of forensic pathologists and this is a way to, you know, have, have a larger voice, I think. Yes. And, and to, and to be, <laughs> 
inclusive, just to, to reach out and hold hands and say, can we, can we work together? Can we help each other? It's just, it's a, it's a better, more satisfying way to live than to, to stay in your foxhole lobbing grenades across no man's land. <laughs> right. Yeah, I agree with that. All right. So currently you're the professor and director of the forensic division of the Department of Pathology at the University of Alabama at Birmingham, which which you mentioned a little bit earlier also. So becoming a teacher, is this kind of, because you talked about the, all of the mentors that you had earlier in your career, is this kind of a way of sort of paying that forward? Like, was this something that you always intended to do? Yes. I didn't know I would have this opportunity specifically in academia because there are very few academic jobs in forensic pathology. But I I certainly understood from the teachers I had in medical school and from the example that Julia Gooden first set me in the Nashville Medical Examiner's Office that it's incumbent upon you to model the same sort of good behavior as the, the mentors and examples you had that this made a favorable impression on you. So I've always tried to do that. It really is just boils down to caring enough, caring enough so that you try to help other people in the same way that once upon a time people helped you. As far as your role as, as an educator, what's most rewarding about that for you? There's two things. One is when I see a student grasp something or understand something, or, or even better yet, leap beyond me to, to grasp something that I haven't grasped yet and teaches me. And that's the other aspect of it. I said there were two. The other is that the students and teaching younger people pushes you to know and to learn. They just keep you on your toes so that you're not sitting around all the time saying, well, well, Back in the day, this is how we did it, and I'm not changing. You, you gotta, you gotta be. I, I remember a story that I heard once about a Rye syndrome, which was related to to aspirin use. And a pediatrician told me this. He said there were there were these two older pediatricians in his hospital, and he said I really respected them. I just knew in my bones that those two were what you should be like, grow into as an older physician. So when it came out and they said, well, don't give babies aspirin, he said, a lot of the old physicians said, that's ridiculous. I've been treating babies with aspirin my whole career. There's That is, that is nothing to that. I'm just going to keep doing what I've always done. But not those two. The pediatrician told me those two said, well, I hadn't really thought anything about it, but I've got alternative choices. I'll just use those. If, if, if it might help save a child, I'll do it. So instead of considering this some sort of affront or a challenge to their authority, they considered it an opportunity to learn and adjust and maybe do better. And that's exactly what happened. You know, you don't hear about Rye syndrome anymore because no one gives aspirin to babies. Do you think it's, it's part of the role of a, of a teacher uh, you know, part of of your role, like like you have, you think that's important to help influence uh, more students into forensic pathology. I would very much like to see people enter forensic pathology. 
Uh, however, as I said at the very beginning, I myself thought I wouldn't like it. it. It is in no way is this a field for nearly everyone. It is hard. It it takes seeing people who have died and often who've died needlessly takes a toll on my certainly my psyche. I think anyone's mm-hmm. psyche over the years. I, I don't I don't think I'm whining, but I am not innocent like I was 30 years ago. I sometimes regret innocence that I have lost. And part of my struggle is to continue to have faith and trust that that people can strive toward goodness. When I see examples of, of how cruel or thoughtless people can be. So I just, I can't descend into cynicism. That would be committing a kind of um, suicide of the soul if I descended into to bitter cynicism. So I won't let myself do it, but I have to fight it in a way that I didn't have to fight it 30 mm-hmm. years ago. Now, the last thing I wanted to talk about, so looking back on your career so far, what have been some of the uh, most exciting changes you've seen in in the field of forensic pathology or pathology in general? Oh, well, now you broadened it when you said pathology in general, but I'll start with forensic pathology for certain. Okay. This this may seem odd, but but what really excites me is the degree to which people are willing to cooperate with each other. And I've thought a lot about that. Forensic pathology, when, when I'm trying to describe how the medical examiner and corner system in America works, I tell people to think about maps of feudal Europe with this, this baron and that duke, and they've got their moats and their castles, and they say, you do your thing, but you can't come over here and tell me what to do. There's a lot of that, or historically, there was a lot of that in death investigation practices. They have their jurisdiction. That's their their a castle wall is their jurisdiction, the parameters of their jurisdiction. And I, th- I think this is what happened. The generation of physicians that was trained ahead of me, as best I can tell from observing and listening to them, they were trained to be uh, to, to take care of themselves by themselves, lone wolves, if you wish. And so that, you know, you're out there, you have to do it all. That's not how I and my generation of physicians, we weren't trained that way. We were trained as part of a care team. And that's even more true now. So I've been really pleased as the lone wolves who were, not all of them, but some who were absolutely unwilling to change or bend for anyone else just to prove that they were in charge of their their place, that as they have retired, the next generation of leaders have been ones who say, you know what, if we can accomplish good by my my bending some and changing my practices some and you changing your practices some – we can we can get somewhere. We can do better than we're doing, and that's that's part of what the opioid paper shows. Also, we've got I think we've gotten more diverse, and I, I do think as we talked some earlier, I think people are beginning to to recognize not just in forensic pathology but outside that forensic pathologists do have 
human interaction. And it is very much a specialty that requires human skills, inter- skills in human interaction. And that just simply was not the perception a generation ago. I, the, the general consideration then was, well, if you can't communicate with other people, then you become a forensic pathologist where you'll just, you know, be in a little room and, and uh, we'll slide you food in and out through some sort of trap door. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're better off than that now. For right. all of pathology, my goodness, all the changes, the genetic, molecular genetics, mm-hmm. um, I, the, the, the treatments that exist now that prolong life uh, for people with malignancies that didn't exist 30 years ago, the, the changes in medicine are staggering to me. And it just seems to continue. I think mm-hmm. what we need to do now, I heard a nice presentation on this by Atul Gawanda. Uh, at the recent meeting of the American Society for Clinical Pathology. America is very good at discovering new things. We haven't always been as good at putting new things into practice that hasn't seemed as exciting as discovering more new things. But if we could start putting into practice some things that we already know, we could improve the quality of, of healthcare available to all. And and I, I hope that, that 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 spirit seems or that desire to make those sorts of contributions seems to reside in the, the students that are being trained and coming out now. So I hope that that will that that will develop and that, that it'll improve us in a way that, that we need improving. Do you think for the future of forensic pathology, do you think that's going to be a matter of putting things into practice as well. I mean, you hear about, you know, more CTs, CT scans being used in autopsies and even, you know, the so-called virtual autopsy, things like that. Do you think that's what the future of forensics is going to look like? Oh, I do. Offices are getting CT scans. It isn't so much that CT is a virtual autopsy that will replace autopsy. It's it's just an incredibly powerful tool. Anyone in medicine knows how powerful CT has been, but it's powerful in death investigation, too. Some cases that are currently require autopsy may not require autopsy. There are ways in which CT can reveal findings that that traditional autopsy simply cannot, like an air embolus. You know, you can quantify that with a CT scan. You, You really it's difficult. If not impossible to quantify an ear embolus uh, at the the uh, gur- on the gurney, so so CT is definitely an incredibly useful adjunct to real autopsy. I, I myself do not see that there is a time that that there will never again be a scalpel in hand. There there is need to do that sort of work as well. But the forensic pathologists. Uh, of the next 10, 20, 30 years, we'll have to have both those sorts of knowledges, the this knowledge of reading, interpreting CT scans, and how to perform an autopsy. Well, Dr. Davis, this has been really interesting. I, I really appreciate kind of going back through your career and talking about some of the, uh, you know, highlights of, of your career and your your time with NAME and, and all these other things. So, uh, Dr. Greg Davis, thank you very much. Oh, thank you. I appreciate your asking. Great big thanks to Dr. Greg Davis. Now, the episode last week with Dr. Susie Lishman, when I originally uploaded the file, I 
somehow turned the volume all the way down so it sounded like an hour's worth of silence. Luckily, someone told me about the problem. Thank you, Kathy. I was able to get it fixed. So please go and check that one out. You might have to re-download the episode, but it is there. And Dr. Lishman had some really interesting things to say, and it was a really a fun conversation. And after you listen to that one, here's a clip from another episode that I think you'll enjoy. There's a section in the book where you kind of give an overview of medical science and, and pathology. You talk about the different kind of sub subspecialties or sub-branches of within pathology as far as anatomic and clinical, and then how you know fluids and tissue specimens are processed and analyzed and that that sort of thing why did you include this kind of section in the book i mean it seems like this was sort of to inspire others to to look at this field to get into this field as well which is something i try to do with this podcast was that am i, am I interpreting that right you're interpreting it exactly right so i wanted to make sure that the readers understood you know, number one, what pathology is. And I thought if I could give them a little bit of a flavor, you know, and for the multidisciplinary nature of it and maybe drop something in there that they could relate to, uh, you know, when mm -hmm. they've gone to the, to the doctor and they've, you know, see the clinical laboratory report. But yeah, I, w I was hoping that I would pique some interest in, in pathology, uh, because we, we, we still need uh, young people going into pathology and we are we, we hurting big time in uh, forensic pathology. You can hear more from Dr. Douglas Posey in episode 69. So like Dr. Davis said, forensic pathologists have a huge role in public health and epidemiology. And most people probably wouldn't think of that. So it was really interesting to hear his thoughts on that. And regarding what he said about his time as the president of the National Association of Medical Examiners, I mean, I think that really stresses the importance of getting involved in your professional organizations, which, of course, is something we've said many times on this podcast. And then also, it was really interesting to hear his thoughts on what he thinks the future of pathology and forensic pathology are going to look like. There are just so many great things in this conversation. I really enjoyed it. So thanks again to Dr. Davis. As always, I'll have links in the show notes to everything we talked about today. Don't forget, you can follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at People of Path or connect with me on LinkedIn. Thank you for continuing to share the show with others. And together, let's inspire the next generation of pathologists and laboratory professionals. This show is a member of Health Podcast Network, which connects listeners with conversations and stories about health, care, and well-being. And you can find a link in the show notes to Health Podcast Network if you'd like to check out some of their other interesting podcasts. Thank you very much for listening, and I will talk to you next time on the People of Pathology podcast.